Good morning. Thanks, Kevin and team. That was uh, a little sweet spirit in this place today. My name is Len. I'm the transitional pastor here at Crossroads. Time is flying. This is my eighth month already. Starting to feel familiar. Wow. So, reading from Nehemiah, we're back in Nehemiah, chapter 1 and 2, working backwards. Yeah, I like to do it that way. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, remember this is the capital city of Persia, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. Skipping to chapter 2 in Jerusalem. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So for three weeks, we've been talking about the why. W-H-Y, the why. That deep sense of purpose that moves us along and we've been looking at how to live a life of vision. Nobody wants to get to the end of their life and realize, I missed God's purpose for my life. So where does vision come from? Well, God builds it into our personality, first of all, so it's a gift, and then that gift connects to God's work in the world somehow. So vision begins as a burden or a concern, begins as a concern that God gives you, and it grows to the point where you have to do something about it. One of the problems when we begin to look at vision is that reality takes over and there's all sorts of obstacles between your present situation and your call. So last week we talked about rebuilding the walls, doing that one thing that God has called you to do. And that thing might be your call, it might be your why, or it might be repairing a breach, taking care of something that's in the way, something that prevents you from living your why. So today we're in Nehemiah again to talk about two things. The collective nature of vision and how we prepare to receive it. So first, collective vision. All sorts of collectives gather around a shared vision. Nations have vision, a sense of purpose and mission. Political parties have vision. We're this, we're not that. This is what we stand for. Definitely not those guys. Companies and corporations, large and small, promote their brand, their corporate identity, their collective why. And they tell us as clearly as they can, this is what Microsoft is about, or Google, or Canadian Tire, or WestJet, or Tesla, whatever, right? It's a corporate vision. It's a flag they fly that they can rally around. It's something they can also test 
to know that they're on course. It's the same for the church, for church as actually. We're a body, a corporate reality, a collective. Remember what Paul says about the body, Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually are members one of another. Wow, right? We're members of one body, members or parts of one another, which is a lot like Jesus' prayer for us in John 15, that we might be one together and in a very specific way, that we might be one as Jesus and the Father are one. That's a pretty deep unity. We're not there yet. It's something we have to actually walk out in our relationships. And that's part of the reason for this process. We want to grow in this spiritual unity. We want to become what God has called us to be together as members of one body. So we all get to play a part in both working and discerning and hearing God's voice for our direction, for the direction of crossroads as a church. So let's make the connection to Nehemiah. Let's think for a minute about this city wall. That was Nehemiah's task. This wasn't the wall of a home. It was the wall of a city. And it wasn't a pile of random rocks. I'm going to place a rock here because it looks good to me. That's where I want it. It was everyone working on one wall with one purpose, fitting the stones together. And when the wall was complete, the benefit was for all. Everyone enjoys the protection of the wall. In fact, in some ways, you could say that the wall creates the city. So this collective function, think of it like a family. I'm, in my family, I'm an individual. Individuals and families have their own gifts and their own roles. But we work together for one purpose, for the good of all. We want our family to prosper and be healthy. We want our children to grow and mature into adults. Maybe the biggest purpose of the family to ensure our children are healthy, that they get trained and nurtured, that we support their particular gifts and callings. And in the family, parents have their own personal roles. Cooking, all these things that have to be done. Cooking, laundry, fixing the car, cutting the grass, bringing home the paycheck, shopping. But we're doing it toward a common purpose. We're actually only doing one task together. We're actually building one wall together, caring for the family, ensuring that it has integrity and growth, and our collective identity is built around that shared purpose. How does that collective identity get formed? Well, first by our shared work, but also by time together, many meals together, by conversation and debate, by worshiping together, by working and playing together, by rituals and gifts, by celebrating wins. Sound familiar? This is true of churches also. We have a collective identity that's worked out over time. We share values and tasks and a calling. We share a common purpose to know Jesus and make him known, the most basic purpose statement maybe there is, to see people growing and maturing in Christ. And maybe in some level we really just want to change the world. Right? So let's talk about vision. Remember that vision both comes from us collectively and then it shapes us collectively. So it has this strange dual nature. We define a vision and then the vision starts to define us. So my question today, how do we prepare to discern a collective vision? 
Dan Sutherland writes this, the difference between a home run and a long foul ball is timing. Timing is everything. He goes on to define God's will like this, doing the right thing in the right way for the right motive at the right time. You can have everything lined up. The right thing, the right way, the right motive. But if you have the wrong timing, things will not go well. So there's no shortcut to vision. Vision is usually given to those who patiently wait for it. And this is another lesson from Nehemiah. There's two verses in chapter 1 and 2 of Nehemiah that are really easy to miss, but they give two really important dates. Nehemiah 1 verse 1 gives the date that Nehemiah first heard about the walls in Jerusalem being broken down. And scholars have studied that verse, and they figured out the date was probably December of 446 BCE. And then Nehemiah 2 verse 1 gives us the first date that Nehemiah did anything about this vision that God had given him. Why is that important? Well, scholars have figured that this first action took place around April or May of 445. So for four months, Nehemiah did nothing. What was God doing while Nehemiah waited? Why did Nehemiah wait that four-month period before he took any action? Because in the waiting period between vision and action, God is doing three important things. First, God matures the vision in us. Nehemiah 1 verse 4 says, When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. So God gave Nehemiah the, the burden or concern, but Nehemiah wasn't ready to do anything about it yet. In fact, all he could do for days was mourn and fast and pray. He would have been foolish to get on his horse and begin the ride to Jerusalem right away because he wasn't ready yet. God had to mature the vision that was in Nehemiah's heart. The vision had to grow. It had to grow before he could do anything about it. So vision is like a seed. It takes time to form roots and then the green shoots pop up and they start to grow. God determines the schedule for how that vision matures and grows. One of the presidents of World Vision was a very successful businessman. He was actually president of Lenox, China, until his 50s. It took that long for God to plant a new dream in his heart, a dream for World Vision. So God has his own timetable for maturing the vision. And like a young plant, vision is a fragile thing when it first hits the light. If you move on the vision too soon, you end up killing it. So Andy Stanley writes, For vision to survive, it must be mature and healthy before being exposed to this cynical, critical, stubborn environment in which it's expected to survive. And maturity takes time. So that's number one. God matures the vision in us. And then secondly, God's doing something else during the waiting period. God matures us in preparation for the vision. God doesn't just mature the vision, he has to mature us to be ready for the vision. He has to grow us, be ready to carry out the vision. And this is usually pretty obvious for individuals, but how about for families or for churches? It's interesting that churches go great guns for their first 15 or 20 years, and then mostly they decline. They get caught up in ways and means and programs and structures, and people get tired. It's a lot of work. 
Sometimes we get conflicted, don't know how to unravel it. Sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we just get beat up because the enemy is real. So decline happens. We lose the edge. And this is a well-trod path for churches statistically. But what's really interesting is the churches that turn around in these middle years, churches that catch on fire again. And it happens. There's all kinds of things we can point to, but there's a couple of big things. And we see them with Nehemiah, so we'll get there shortly. But usually there's a waiting period. God is preparing us for what he wants to accomplish. That's why Moses spent how many years in the desert being matured? Forty years before he could lead Israel to the promised land? It must have seemed like wasted time, right? But it wasn't. And the same for Israel. It took only a few days to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. In the same way, Paul spent three years in Arabia before he began his ministry. So waiting time is not wasted time. God has to prepare us in preparation for the vision. Nehemiah got off easy, just four months. We can remind ourselves of one thing while we're waiting. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on that day when Jesus Christ comes back again. And while we often claim that verse personally, it was actually addressed to a church, to a body of believers. God is at work maturing us collectively. And he's doing a third thing during the waiting period. God prepares people and circumstances for the vision. While we're waiting, God is behind the scenes preparing the way. When God wants to accomplish something, he has a way of putting the right people in the right circumstances. It may seem like nothing is happening when actually God is working in simple and quiet ways. My favorite example of this is in the book of Esther. The story of Esther took place about 30 years before Nehemiah became concerned about the walls of Jerusalem, but it was the same location. Remember the story, somebody hatched a plot to kill all the Jews in Persia? At the same time, the king decided to search, just randomly decided to search for a new wife just at that time. So they brought all these women to his court, and the one he liked best became his new queen. Esther became that queen. God put her in the right place at the right time so he could prevent a catastrophe. When God is birthing a vision, circumstances aren't accidental. They're part of his design. And God's at work here among us, often just in small and quiet ways, with somebody being prompted to rise early and pray, with simple conversations over coffee or maybe over a backyard fence, with people praying and serving and leading and worshiping and teaching children. God is at work. We're part of it. He's arranging us and others to carry out his vision and his time. It's ultimately not about our vision or our mission. It's about God's vision and God's mission, and we get to be part of that. When I get impatient, I remember Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. But these things I plan won't happen right away. Slowly, steadily, surely the time approaches when the vision will be fulfilled. If it seems slow, wait patiently. It will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Some of us need to write that down. Tape it on your mirror or your fridge. It may seem slow, but God is at work. We have to wait for his timing. Waiting time is not wasted time. St. Anthony offers us some fruitful wisdom. From the Middle Ages, he writes, He who is in a hurry 
delays the good things of God. So Nehemiah teaches us to do two things while we wait. First, to pray. It's the first action Nehemiah took after God gave him the vision. He prayed. Pretty much all of chapter 1 is a prayer. Prayer is crucial to our living out God's vision. If we write a vision on paper, but it hasn't been prayed over at length, it's probably not God's vision. Prayer is essential to crossroads living out God's vision. When you become concerned about something, pray about it. Ask God to show you his heart about this situation. Ask him to give you his eyes. The Bible says that God's thoughts are better than my thoughts. His ways are better than my ways. So I'd rather be thinking his thoughts than my thoughts on any situation. I'd rather be living out God's vision than my vision. And Nehemiah's prayer is useful to study. He begins by recognizing God's holiness. He asked God to hear him. He confessed his sin. And then he asked God for help. Oh Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success now as I go to ask the king for a great favor. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah knew that if he was going to be successful, he needed God. So he starts by placing himself in a receptive place, a place of surrender. God is the king. I'm the subject. God has resources. I'm the needy one. I imagine he spent a lot of time during those four months praying that God would provide him the right timing, the right opportunity to speak to the king. And then in his prayer are some really key elements as well. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He's appealing to the covenant. Lord, we've got an agreement. You made a promise. Our prayers are wise when they appeal to God's promises because we're appealing to God's very nature. He's faithful. His love doesn't change. And then verse 8 and 9, remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen. This is interesting because it appeals both to God's faithfulness as well as to Scripture. And this is an area where the church overall is getting weak. Not our church, I mean the other churches out there. People aren't reading Scripture anymore. When I teach in seminary, scriptural literacy is way down. So we end up with people living by proof texting. And people who are looking for a particular feeling are looking just to justify their opinion about something. But anytime we divide the living word... Jesus, from the written word, we're in a dangerous place. We're also in a place where our prayers are losing their anchor. Reading scripture lets God have the first word. His word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. So the relationship between vision and prayer is a crucial one. John 15 says, apart from me, you can do nothing. For not depending on God then the vision is dead on arrival. So if we go through this refocusing process and we're not praying at every step of the path, we risk working out our vision and not God's vision. Are we trusting? What are we trusting God to do? Pray that God would bring glory to himself. Pray that he'd remove all the obstacles and that you would play a part in helping God create what could be and what should be. 
And Nehemiah took a second, second action while he waited. His second action was to plan. How do we know this? Because God eventually gave him a chance to speak to the king. In Nehemiah 2, we see Nehemiah was ready to tell the king exactly what he had in mind. He had thought and prayed and prepared. He defined the problem and the solution. He had spent months, he spent the waiting time formulating a, that plan of action. The praying and the planning went together. So while we're waiting, we can ask God to show us what he wants to do. And we can begin to do our homework. We can observe and listen, understand the context. Without a plan, we won't be ready when the opportunity comes. So there are two mistakes we can make relative, relative to vision. The first mistake, mistake, I'm going to try to talk today. First mistake is spiritualizing. Oh yeah, we just need to pray and God will download it all and make it happen. Sounds really spiritual, right? Doesn't work this, but does it work this way in any other part of your life? The second mistake is assuming God's blessing, which is why the rabbis say, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Holy Spirit gives many gifts to the body, both intercessory, prophetic gifts, and strategic and leadership gifts. We need all that God gives us to receive and then work out the vision. We see both gifts at work in Nehemiah's story. And this comes together beautifully in chapter 4. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work. Well, half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates. And the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. Perfect summary of how we should function. One hand doing the work, the other hand prepared for battle. In other words, we work and we pray. Because if we're seeking God's heart, we're going to encounter opposition. Our task is to see through God's eyes what he wants for us, what he's called us to do and to be. And as a church, we've been in a waiting period. That's not an easy place to be, but waiting time is not wasted time. God is maturing us and growing the vision in our hearts and preparing us to receive his plan. So be in prayer. Prayer for our church, for our leaders, and next Sunday as we gather, we'll seek to hear from God together. Let's pray.